start with the set aside prayer. God, please set aside everything I think I know about you, God, the steps, recovery, the big book, what's best for me, what's best for others. Especially, help me let go of all my ideas so I can live on your spiritual truth. Heavenly Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me to carry your message today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I told him I wouldn't review, but uh, we're starting uh, a paragraph that unless you knew what was proceeding, it wouldn't make any sense. So not a lot of review. A uh, man of 30, and he thinks he can uh, drink again after uh, not drinking for 25 years so he could be successful, and then he dies. And it contains a powerful lesson, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And they give a warning, really. If you're planning to stop drinking, on page 33, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. That's why Dr. Bob says, are you done? Are you completely done? Is there any work? Because if not, you'll have that lurking notion, and then uh, you'll, it means you're really not done. I'll be done for a while. So then they talk about young people. I don't know what was young in 1939. Uh, there was a 35-year-old guy that came, and they thought he was pretty young. That was uh, Clarence Snyder, who Dr. Bob didn't think he was old enough to be an alcoholic yet. Uh, young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think they can stop as he did on their own willpower. And that could be all ages. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them, because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired, will find he can win out. I used to call it queer mental twist, but Stu corrected me. There's a peculiar mental twist, and once you acquire that, you can't live sober and not take the first drink. And they're gonna talk about that in the next few pages. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, have been drinking only a few years but they found themselves as helpless as those, now helpless without power, as those who had been drinking 20 years. So how long you drank doesn't mean that you have less power. If you only drank three years, you have more power than the ones who are 20 years. Once you've crossed that line and you have that peculiar mental twist, there's nothing you can do about it. To be gravely affected that means fatal, to have a fatal illness. One that's not necessarily have to drink a long time nor take the quantity some of us has. So to be fatally affected doesn't mean how long you drank or how much you drank. And this is particularly true of women. I don't know why they said that. I guess because they didn't see a lot of women alcoholics. But uh, I, I believe it, I don't know if it's true, that women's liver gets more dysfunctional quickly than men's. It's more toxic to them. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond a recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. And they have the delusion that they can stop whenever they want. Have you ever heard that? where people have come here and they said, well, I was sober for three months, I could stop again. You know, I'll drink for a while, and then when I'm ready, I'll stop. But I don't know if they could do that. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large number of potential alcoholics. 
alcoholic people everywhere. Here's a, here's a line that I hadn't really seen a, a lot before, but try and get them to see it. Try to get someone, and did anybody try to get you guys to see it or me to see it? It's tough to, we can't see the truth. We're constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves. And a lot of people never get to see it. Cannot see the truth of their situation, powerless. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit our own willpower. And I wrote, why didn't they? If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone. You know, I covered this, I wrote in the book, December 26, 2018, the day after Christmas. Um, try leaving quick, leaving liquor alone for one year. What about a day or a week? Uh, if he is a real alcoholic, remember a real alcoholic is someone who uh, has no power not to drink, and once they drink, they have no power to stop. And very far advanced, there's scant chance of success. And most people don't want to try to stop at all. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers yet again. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may not be a, yet a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. So whom, whom are they writing this book for? People who have no power not to take the first drink. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a firm weeks, few weeks. And resolution means a firm decision to do or not to do something. For those who are alcoholics, for those who are, excuse me, who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how, remember they talked in the beginning about how we try to moderate our drinking and we can't do that. For those who are not able to drink mildly, the question is how to stop altogether. Now here's the assumption. We're assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Often I assume they want to stop, but sometimes they really don't. Um, whether such a person, here's a, here's a powerful statement, can quit forever, I wrote, put added that to the book, can quit upon a non-spiritual basis, depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. If you've lost the power to choose whether you can drink or not, you cannot recover on a non-spiritual basis. You cannot recover on uh, self-help or self-knowledge or fear or understanding yourself better. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character or that we were characters. There was a tremendous urge or desire to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcohol as we know it. Remember, cunning, baffling, powerful, it's baffling. It's a liquor, liquid in a bottle. This utter inability to leave it alone has power over us in our mind, right? No matter how great the necessity or the wish. How then shall we help our readers determine, so here's, what here's the purpose of this chapter. How can we help our readers or you determine to your own satisfaction whether you're really one of us? 
The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholics sufferers than perhaps the medical fraternity, so doctors can understand why, why we keep doing insane things. We shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse, and relapse is the suffered de deterioration or to slide back into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. That's the most important part of the problem, is why, what mental states precede our drinking when we don't want to drink? What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? It's an experiment, isn't it? It goes poorly. Friends who have reasoned with him after spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he, or what is he thinking? And I wrote, he's thinking of relief from living sober. And mystified means utterly bewildered or perplexed. So now we're going to get to one of our favorites, right guys, Jim. Jim is great. This is a great story. I don't know if there was a real Jim or not. I don't know. Uh, our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. And I wrote above it of what is he thinking. And I wrote the disease is really of our thinking because it's our thinking centered on self and not God. And when we do that, we have fear, we have resentment, we make bad decisions, and we have shame and guilt. So here's Jim. He has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile in this agency. Pretty lucky guy, isn't he? Commendable war record, and he's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. I don't know if that's true. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we could see. Remember, we can't see into an alcoholic's mind, and I don't think we'd want anybody to see the crap that goes on in our heads, right? Even sober. Anybody have crap in your head sober? Yeah, I told Mark I'm all worried about Sunday. It, meanwhile, it's Saturday morning. Talking about the Chiefs game. Not really that worried. Uh, except for a nervous disposition. So he seems great, but he has a nervous disposition. So he was irritable, restless, and discontented. He did, I think that would be a good description of uh, a dry drug, a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. When leaving the asylum, that's where they put him. They put him in asylums because these people are dangerous to themselves. He came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. And you might ask yourself, what do you know of alcoholism that you could share with someone? And the book. The book's trying to tell us uh, what they knew of alcoholism up to page 43, right, the end of this chapter, starting with doctor's opinion. And the answer, so you tell not only what we knew of alcoholism, but the answer we had found. Isn't that what we talk about? We tell them what we were like and then what happened and what we're like now. How did you find the answer? He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. I'm sure that was tough for him. 
All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. That's scary. It's, uh, it's scary for me. I want to keep my spiritual life connected to God as best as I can. And that's a warning. And I hear people talk about how happy they are being sober, you know, for a few months or, and how great things are, but um, we don't know how long that'll last if you don't have a relationship with God. And I believe taking the action of the steps. Remember that step zero, when you've quit drinking, but you haven't worked the steps to get a relationship with God. That was a really good uh, uh, guy who uh, talked about that. He's dead now. Um, but he helped me a lot. I listened to a lot of his talks. All went well for time, but I wrote that. To his consternation, that means he was perplexed, feeling of dismay, he found himself drunk. Not once, but half a dozen times in rapid succession. Now, on each of these occasions, we worked with him. So how many, what's the limit to how many times you could work with someone? None. Twelve times. And reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. But was he completely defeated? See, that's knowledge. You have knowledge that you're an alcoholic and knowledge of your serious condition, but do you, have you surrendered? Have you been surrendered by it? There's a difference. He knew he, knew he to see, the difference is, can you see that you have no power to fix the situation ever? And it makes you humble, and it makes you 100% willingness. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he had kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. So if he drank, he was going to end up in the asylum, and he was going to lose his family for whom he had deep affection. But guess what happened? We're going to see he had a greater affection for alcohol. Loving your family won't help. Quitting for your wife won't help. Um, yet he got drunk again. We asked him, so here's a man who, who knew he had, he, had a, he had a hopeless condition, at least intellectually, and he knew he would lose everything, and yet he drank again. So they're going to tell us what kind of thinking went through him so we could see, see it. We asked him to tell us exactly what had happened. This is his story. And I, I made the point that it's a story. It's a, and we're going to see the story in his head this false reality he had. So he came to work on Tuesday morning, and uh, Joe and Charlie made the point, where was he on Monday? Maybe he was drunk. And uh, I don't know why they put Tuesday morning, but I think that it was to emphasize something. And he says, I remember I felt irritated. Now, irritation for an alcoholic is rage, right? Anybody agree with that sometimes? We're irritated that I had to be a salesman for the concern I once owned. So he had a deep resentment. He used to own this damn business, and now he's a salesman for it. And that would make anyone irritated. And so uh, he had a few words with the boss. 
Why? The boss probably wanted to know, where were you on Monday? But he writes, nothing serious. I don't know if that's true. I think Jim is beginning to distort reality right here. And we're going to see what happens. Then he makes a decision. Now notice, who made this decision? Jim did. Not God, not anyone else, to drive it to the country to see one of my prospects for a car. Now there certainly were plenty of people, but he had to go into the country. And why? Because on the way, he knew there was a bar. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I don't know if that's true either. Remember, at certain times, we cannot recall the humiliation defeat of a moment ago. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion, the idea, that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I'd been going into for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. So he sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. Not sure that's true either. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, suddenly, the thought crossed my mind. But I think before the suddenness, there was a, a whole series of, of think thoughts that led up to it. And I, I think if we analyze ourselves, we all did the same thing. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I, and this is squiggly writing, that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. <laughs> Makes sense? So I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. Now this is uh, Stu's vague, famous lines. I vaguely sensed. <laughs> I've done things where I vaguely sensed this wasn't a good idea, you know? Sober, I've done vaguely sensed. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but here's the deal. I felt reassured, and I wrote by who? Who reassured him? As I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. We're laughing, but we can all relate. And it's so tragic. Now, we don't know what happened in the gym after this. We don't know. They don't tell us. The experiment went so well I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment. You, you know, there was, he had that fear, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of the intense mental and physical suffering which drink, drinking always caused him. So that was just cast aside. That couldn't keep him from drinking. This is a powerful story. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Probably should read this with someone new when they come in. Read, read this chapter. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. So, but we know knowledge won't fix us. Group won't fix us. Triggers won't fix us. Therapy, as, as I understand it, won't fix me. Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside. 
in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So he had an old idea, a foolish idea, that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. And notice he pushed, he pushed aside, he just pushed it aside in favor of the foolish idea. I don't know how they wrote it, it's a beautiful uh, example. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So it's an ability to see and act on truth. It's like putting our hand in the hot stove, saying we won't burn it this time. Anybody do that? Anybody keep putting your finger in a hot stove? No. Well, we kept doing this. Yeah. But I remember burning my finger when I was like 12, and I never did that again. I never touched the hot pan again, unless by accident. You may think this is an extreme case, to it is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every one of us. Now, there's a speaker I really like, and he says, H-S-H-I-T. Anybody ever heard of that? Simply how I think. Really, really good speaker. Uh, uh, he's one of my favorites. Simply how I think has been characteristic of every one of us, one of us. So we can all relate to Jim. Jim's no better or worse than we are. That's what we're like without God. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomena, that means we can't explain it, that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably, inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. So what they're saying is that I have sound reasoning. I wake up with sound reasoning. I'm not going to take the first drink. OK, I've said the psalm of. But at the same time, there's something going on in my brain, this curious mental phenomena that's going hand in hand. And then there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for the first drink. So my curious mental phenomenon, my obsession of mind, my damaged brain, is running all day long parallel with my sound reasoning. But then there's some insanely trivial thing that happens, and our sound reasoning fails to hold us in check. It's a really powerful way of describing it. And so I can't, I can't hold my willpower or my sound reasoning in check. It's kind of sad, isn't it? The insane idea won out. And so uh, that's how they describe this, this uh, obsession of the mind. Uh, our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. And my sound reasoning will never hold me in check. And the insane idea that I can take a drink will will out because I'll be living sober, my emotions build up, and then I'll think, only think about what alcohol is going to do for me, not to me. And then I'll go to the liquor store. And uh, we've all done it. Next day, we could ask ourselves, in all earnestness and sincerity, how it could have happened. In some circumstances, 
we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, deliberately, feeling ourselves justified. You know, I've tried so hard, I've been sober a long time, she won't stop nagging me. The people at work are impossible. The traffic lights aren't synchronized. The sun's not out, you know, it could be anything. Feeling ourselves justified, that's, that's a good way of putting it, we're justified. Now who's responsible for these feelings that I'm justified to do something insane? And I'm justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. That is living separated from God, that's the spiritual malady. The result of running my life is that I'm gonna get nervous, angry, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. So we could justify in our mind, but a lot of times we don't even, we don't even, we don't even, can't even rationally explain it. And we don't care. We just do it. Uh, we now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. So uh, that's basically summarizing. We have no defense against the first drink, right? And at certain times, we cannot recall the humiliation and defeat of uh, even a moment ago, and we have no power not to take the first drink. I think I'll read the Jaywalker. Is that okay? Mark? We got plenty of time. All right, guys. Here we go. This is great. I don't know how they thought this one either. Our behavior, well, they lived it. And I'm sure they were, there was literature that was available to them from the Oxford group and about alcoholics writing. Our behavior is as absurd it's absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. They're trying to give you an example of how absurd and incomprehensible our behavior is taking the first drink, knowing the consequences, and knowing we can't control how much we drink. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles, and we, we enjoy drinking in the beginning. And it relieved my, uh, it changed the way I saw the world. It changed my reality, it changed my perception. It made me feel different. That's powerful when something can do that, right? That's why you get addicted, because you want that. You keep seeking it, and your mind knows that it can do it. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Anybody get some friendly warnings? Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap, having queer ideas of fun. People think it's strange when we drink ourselves and we pass out. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. He keeps getting hit by cars. He keeps running in front of him. So the thrill must be greater than the consequences of getting hit. And the thrill is what he's seeking through the, his behavior or the relief. Presently, 
is hit again, this time a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks he breaks both legs. On through the years, his conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to who? To himself, to others, to be careful, keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. And remember, he made a decision to stop jaywalking for good, he could, but we can't follow through in our decisions, right? We don't have the power to follow through in our decisions. That's a bad situation. But we're helpless, right? We have no power. Went through the years, the conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful to stay off the streets. Finally, he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce. He's held up the ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. You see, we, we can try everything, but we can't get this idea that alcohol will fix the way we feel out of our heads. It's there, it's there. And we don't know when it's gonna overcome our sound reasoning. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't it? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcohol for Jay walking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other aspects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? So intelligence won't help me. Nothing will help me. I think these are two great examples that we can never, left to our own devices, keep from taking the first drink. Now, we may do it for years, but the time will come when we will drink. Now, some people may do it forever. I don't know. I can't talk about that. I'm just talking about myself and the people I've tried to help and the people I've seen and know in AA. And so I think I'm going to start with those two examples, and then we're going to look at um, some more. There is a line on the next page, I'll just say, as a, as a uh, trailer. Mm -hmm. But the actual potential alcohol, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable, absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. So there's no, there's no, there's no human power can relieve my alcoholism. All right, we'll stop there, and we have time to open it up and people to share. Those are two great stories, aren't they? I think uh, um, sometimes I think people have taken the first step when they meet them here, but I think I'm going to read those two stories to them if I meet somebody and try to help them. Thank you, guys.